0: but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. This past week, and today's my first day back. So uh, if I haven't emailed you recently, I'll I'll email you back this week. But it's good to be back with the church family. We always miss you guys. And It's good to be with you. Um, Last year, I was heading home from Maine on vacation and we stopped by Niagara Falls. And if you've never been there, it really is amazing. Make sure you go lower deck where you get like the waterfalls on you. It was great. Um, But while we were there, you could see across the river into Canada because it's on the US Canadian border. And where we parked our van was, uh, behind it was a sidewalk and behind that sidewalk was a fence. And behind that fence was the entrance into Canada. And we were hoping after visiting Niagara Falls that we could drive back to Green Bay by going through Canada. Because I've heard it's a lot more beautiful than Cleveland, Ohio, um, as well as like Chicago, Illinois. And so we were really hoping to be able to take the more scenic route. uh, But because they had still very strict COVID restrictions, my family uh, was not able to gain entrance into Canada. We could see it. We could see like the people kind of as dots all around and kind of what's over there, but we couldn't enter into it. Um, Last week, Ron Young preached about uh, a scribe. If you remember in Mark chapter 12, kind of the whole chapter, the religious leaders are taking their turns coming to, (coughs) excuse me, (coughs) tickle in my throat. Uh, They come trying to uh, catch Jesus with their questions because they want to destroy him. He's a threat to them and to their popularity and their fame. And so they're trying to destroy Jesus. And the scribe comes and he asks this question. He says, which which commandment is the most important of all? And we're not sure how sincere he was in this, um, but it was certainly a loaded question which Jesus could offend a lot of people. Hold on, I gotta get this out. There we go. Um, and so he asks, what is the most important commandment of all? And Jesus answers, you know, the most important commandment uh, is, hear, O Israel, the Lord of God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord of God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And then Jesus throws in a bonus answer, and he says, and the second is like it, uh, in that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the scribe says to Jesus, you are right. And I love Jesus. Jesus kind of like, yeah, you're right that I'm right. Uh, I am right about this. And then Jesus says something very, very interesting that's very important for our passage today. He says to this scribe, he says, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Now, on one hand, this can be taken as an encouragement because this scribe is headed in the right direction. But on the other hand, this means that the scribe is not inside the kingdom of God. And this can be a warning to him because this is a man who has divided, who has dedicated his entire life to religious studies. Uh, He was a religious scholar who knew the Bible. He was a religious scholar who knew what the greatest commandment was and the second that was like it. He knew all of these things, but he was not yet in the kingdom of God. It was just over the fence, just on the other side of the river. He was close but he wasn't in the kingdom of God. And so this raises a lot of questions for us in terms of the kingdom of God. Like, if this guy doesn't make it into the kingdom of God, how could I possibly make it into the kingdom of God? What is the kingdom of God like? If we become a part of the kingdom, like how should we behave as citizens of that kingdom? How do I know if I'm in that kingdom or not? And Jesus addresses all of these questions today in this passage in Mark chapter 12. So if you would open up Mark 12, page 848 in the Red Bible. If you're new here, uh, we just go through that through verse by verse. So keep that Bible open during the entire sermon. During this, uh, as you turn there, uh, verse 34, which is right before our passage today, uh, there's something interesting that says this. And after that, after Jesus answered that great, great question, no one dared ask Jesus any more questions. Again, the religious leaders have been trying to trap Jesus, but Jesus, like a theological ninja, uh, embarrasses them all with every every time he answers. And so no one wants to ask Jesus any more questions, but now Jesus decides to turn the tables. They've been asking him questions all day, now he is going to ask them a question. And this is his final question for these religious leaders. Before his crucifixion it is his final question for those who are near but not in the kingdom of God. And so we're going to just start by reading verses 35 through 37. We're going to go through the end of the chapter eventually. But we're just going to start with this initial question from Jesus. Okay, So Mark 12, verse 35 through 37. And as Jesus taught in the temple, chapter 13, we'll see he leaves the temple. But as Jesus taught in the temple... He said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how, how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. You know what, let's keep reading to them. Verse 38. And in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes, who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces, and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Verse 41. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Let's pray. Lord God, we know that you are passionate about your kingdom. And that your kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. Pray, Lord, that your kingdom would conquer more territory in our hearts and in our souls, through this passage, through the preaching of your word. And God, that it would not just be something we remember here, but that transforms us when we leave this building. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. First 18 years of my life, I went to church faithfully. I prayed, I tried to be a good boy, I thought I was in the kingdom, but it turns out I was only close to the kingdom of God. You know, we are in a church here, and so there is a good chance that some of you are here because you are close to the kingdom of God, but you're not in the kingdom of God because you have not fully bought into this whole Christianity thing. Others of us, here are in the kingdom of God by being born again with the Holy Spirit. But if we are honest, we have to confess that we do not always act as citizens of this kingdom. In fact, oftentimes we are virtually indistinguishable from our neighbors that live around us. Today's passage addresses three aspects of the kingdom of God that is important for anyone who is far from the kingdom of God, near to the kingdom of God, or already in the kingdom of God. And the three aspects of the kingdom that Jesus addresses is getting into the kingdom of God, glorying in the kingdom of God, and then giving in the kingdom of God. So getting in, glorying in, and giving in the kingdom of God. First, let's look at getting in the kingdom of God. I love how one commentator puts it. He says, after a day full of questions, it is now time for the question of the day. Jesus asked a question with eternal implications. Again, this is his final question to the religious leaders. Verse 35, and as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? The scribes, as well as many Jews, rightfully believed that the Christ would be the son of David. It was promised A thousand years earlier in 2 Samuel chapter 7, when God makes a covenant with David and with the people of God through David. Just a few chapters earlier, uh, there's actually a blind man that hears that Jesus is coming. And do you remember what he cries out? He cries out, Jesus, son of David, right? The Christ, the Messiah, the promised one. Have mercy on me. And it says, and many rebuked him that blind man telling him to be silent but he cried out all the more son of david have mercy on me of course the irony of this encounter is that the blind man could see what the seeing people couldn't see that jesus is the son of david the messiah the christ and what jesus is essentially asking here is that how can the scribes that how can the scribes say that christ is merely the son of david and then Jesus quotes from Psalm 110, which is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament, uh, but is also a messianic psalm, which means it, it describes the Messiah that was to come. Look at verse 36 with me. It says, David himself in the Holy Spirit, meaning this is the word of God written through David, declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Until I put your enemies under your feet. And then Jesus repeats the question from verse 35. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he merely his son? When we read this in the English, the word Lord appears twice and it appears the same. The Lord said to my Lord, it's the same word in English. It's actually the same word in the Greek New Testament as well, kurios. But when you go back to Psalm 110, it's two different Hebrew words. It says, more or less, the Lord, which is, that name is Yahweh, which is the covenant name of God, how he has revealed himself as creator to his people. The Lord Yahweh says to my Lord, Adonai. And that word Adonai means ruler or authority, a superior, someone who has dominion, a king. And so the question is, how can the Messiah, who's commonly called the son of David, also be Lord over David. It doesn't make sense. You know, my sons are pretty great. I like them. I think they're awesome. I'm not calling them Lord. Even if they wanted me to, I wouldn't call them Lord. How could David say this? How could David say that that his son, his descendant, is not only the Christ, but also Lord? Well, the only logical explanation is that the Messiah is not only David's son, but also David's God. God. I know we have gotten used to this idea of the incarnation, but for a first century Jude to think of an invisible God becoming a visible man was unthinkable. It was almost blasphemous. And that's what the pagan religions did with Zeus and people like that. And yet Jesus is challenging them to think the unthinkable. That standing right in front of them, talking to them, is not only the Christ. That David sings about in Psalm 110, but standing right in front of them, talking to them, is God himself in the flesh. You see, to get into the kingdom of God, they needed to answer this one question correctly, not just with their words, but with their heart. And the one question is this, who is Jesus? Is Jesus a good teacher, a miracle worker? That's true, but it's not good enough. Is Jesus the son of David, the Messiah, the Christ? That's true, but it's not enough. To gain entrance into the kingdom, they had to confess, just as David did, that Jesus was their Adonai, that he was their Lord, their master, their king, and their God. And if they declared anything less, They may get close to the kingdom of God, but they do not gain entrance into the kingdom of God. When Trish and I uh, had kids, we decided that she would stay at home, and uh, because of that, excuse me, because of that, uh, we had, you know, just one income, which was fine, enough to live on, but we also had to make certain cuts, couldn't do certain things, and when I was growing up, you know, my parents took me to Disney World, Magic Kingdom, and it was a great memory. Same for Trish. And so for us, we were like, oh, man, it'd be great to do that with our kids, but we just can't swing it. It's, it's too expensive. It costs $1,000 just to get in plus more, right? So, so we can't really go. But then, but then my dad reminded me about my Uncle Fred, who lives in Florida. And I, I've shared this with some of you before, um, but my Uncle Fred had retired from Disney. And so he was able to get free passes to get family members into Disney. And so um and so we went down there uh and he got all of us in for free into the Magic Kingdom and it was great. Uh it was something we never thought we could do, but but the reason we could get in is because of our understanding or, or our identity in relation to this man how we understood him in relationship to him, that he is my uncle, and so now we can get in. You know, it's okay if you don't go to Disney. Seriously, it's kind of outdated. It's okay if you don't go to Canada. It's beautiful, but so is the UP. But you do not want to be close and not get into the kingdom of God. Because the kingdom of God is where all of your joys meet its fullest extent, The kingdom of God is where everything that you hope will come true does come true in greater fashion than you can even imagine. And so let me ask you, what is your relationship to Jesus? Is Jesus your Christ, your Messiah, your Savior? That's great, but it's not enough. You must bow before Jesus. Surrender to him as your Adonai, your Lord, your King, and your God, And while you will not do this perfectly, none of us do, you can truly surrender yourself to Christ because he has surrendered all of his life for you, that you might come into his glorious kingdom. See, the scribes were close to the kingdom of God, but they were not in the kingdom of God because they did not look to Jesus as the Christ or as Lord of their lives. And so that's how we get into the kingdom of God by acknowledging Jesus as our Savior and as our Lord. Secondly, we have is glorying in the kingdom of God. Look at verse 38 with me. It says, and in his teaching he said, "'Beware of the scribes who like to walk around "'in long robes and like greetings in the marketplace.'" Uh, The scribes would wear these prayer shawls that were colorful and had tassels, they were fantastic. And whenever the scribes would walk into the marketplace or even walk down the road, people would stand up except for laborers. And so people would stand up as they came down, as they would show honor to them. I mean, could you imagine that what, what that would be like? Can you imagine if you walked into the sanctuary and everyone stood up to greet you? It's like you're the bride wherever you go, right? I mean, that would be kind of cool, wouldn't it? Like everyone honors you. Uh, This is what these guys lived for, the honor and the glory that came from men. Verse 39 continues, it says, And the scribes have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honors at feasts. So the best seat in the synagogue was called the first seat, and it was a seat of prominence that faced the congregation. It was for those who were teaching or those who were um, of, of high prominence. It would be like sitting front row of an NBA game. You'd be like, wow, that person's a really big deal. And then they also got the place of honor when they went to feasts. Verse 40 says, who devours widows' houses. There is records of how scribes would translate the Hebrew Old Testament into common language for the, for the people and how they would twist it so that widows would end up giving their houses away to them. It says, and for a pretense or a sham, make long Prayers. They were not praying to God, they were praying to people, trying to impress them. And then it says, they will receive the greater condemnation. Not just condemnation, but greater condemnation. Because God had put them. In their position of authority to love the people of God, to care for the people of God, to protect the people of God, to nourish the people of God. And instead, in their position of power, they used it to exploit the people of God. And for that reason, God will give them a greater judgment. In the expanded narrative of this teaching, which is the entire chapter of Matthew 23, Jesus. Summarizes the scribes in this way. It says, They do all their deeds to be seen by others. These scribes were obsessed with earthly glory, obsessed with financial glory, obsessed with being honored and seen by other people. And if we dare have a little introspection, I think we will discover that we are not all that different. We all see glory. In one way or another. Maybe it's through our humor or our intellect or our athletic abilities or academic accomplishments or our vocational achievements. Maybe it's through our kids and grandkids and how wonderful they are. You know, ironically, one way that I often seek glory, I think other Christians do, is through my humility, right? Like I don't go around bragging to people all the while hoping someone will find out how glorious I am for not bragging to other people. Pastors do this. They, they, they drop in, oh yeah, my congregation's growing, we're this big, or I got to speak at this conference, or so-and-so called me and they're a big deal. We are all glory hungry. I mean, have you ever noticed, like if you look at a group picture that you're in, you ever notice who you look at first? You look at yourself, or at least I do. Maybe now you, it's embarrassing if I'm the only one. Um, but you look at yourself, because you want to make sure you look glorious, right? You make sure others see your glory. You know why people take selfies from this angle right up here? Like that, boom. You know how everyone takes selfies like that? So they can look skinny and glorious. They long for glory. You know why kids and adults spend hours trying to get the right picture and the right caption on social media? So they can get likes. So they can get glory. Glory. Why do girls starve themselves? Why do guys strive for six packs? We want glory. Why do we name drop? Why do we share the accomplishments we have? Glory. Now, don't get me wrong, and I don't want you to mishear this. It's great to share and celebrate successes and achievements and great things that are going on as a gift for God. So this doesn't mean if you hit a home run, you can't tell anyone about it. But if these are the things you go to in order to find your dignity, your worth, and the glory that your soul longs for, you will be sorely disappointed. When we seek to exalt ourselves for glory and the achievements and the opinions of others, we will grow weary, we will grow discouraged, And we will grow desperate because it will never satisfy us as we run on this never-ending treadmill of seeking the glory from this world. And so what is the solution? Is it to suppress the hunger for glory that we have in our souls? No. It is to realize that we were made for another glory, for a better glory, for a greater glory, for a soul-satisfying glory that only comes from God himself. I don't watch much college softball, but there was a press conference just a few weeks ago. Some of you may have seen it. It's gone viral. Um, Oklahoma women's softball won the national championship, the, the crown of glory of the softball world. And they had an interview after they won the championship game again. And the ESPN journalist asked them this question. He says, you know, you have had this This great win record, you've had a target on your back, could cause a lot of anxiety, but you talk about kind of constant joy. How have you kept that constant joy with that target on your back? And so the first player, there's three of them up there, I'll quote each of them. The first player says, you know, the only way that you can have a joy that doesn't fade away is from the Lord. And any other type of joy is happiness that comes from circumstances and outcomes. Thankfully, we've had a lot of success this year, but if it was the other way around, joy from the Lord is the only thing that can keep you. That's really the only answer because there is no other way softball can bring you that joy, especially with the ups and downs of it, she them up. So she's done. Second player, it's her turn. Maybe you'll be a little more politically correct. She says, 1,000% agree. I went through that my freshman year. I was so happy to win the College World Series, but I didn't feel joy. I didn't have joy. I didn't know what to do the next day or the following week. I didn't feel filled. And I had to find Christ. We're not afraid to lose because it's not the end of the world because our life is in Christ. And that's all that matters. Third girl, maybe this one will go better. She says, I think what we have really latched onto is eyes up and she does this symbol. And pointing up, we are fixing our eyes on Christ. You cannot find fulfillment in an outcome, whether that is good or bad. We know this game is giving us the opportunity to glorify God. Once we figured that out and that was our purpose, it changed so much for us. Once I turned to Jesus and saw how he turned my outlook in life, not just on softball, but to exemplify the kingdom, that brings so much freedom. And then she says, we all have those great testimonies that have shown how awesome it is to play for something bigger, something bigger than the glory of a national championship. And then final paragraph says, I think that's what brings me so much joy. No matter the outcome, whether we get a trophy in the end or not, this isn't our home and that's what is amazing about it. We have so much more. We have an eternity of joy with our father and I'm so excited about that. No matter what, my sisters in Christ will be with me in the end when we are with our king let us be students of these three young ladies i doubt any of you have won a world series i doubt any of you will win a world series and yet these three young ladies who have won the world series of college softball multiple times says that is not where we find our glory we find our glory in the gospel of Jesus Christ and in God himself. See, all of us long for glory because we are made for the glory of God. We long for affection and admiration and to be cherished and to be loved and to be adorned and, because that's, that's how God has created us. But no matter how many attaboys you get, no matter how many likes you get on social media, it will not compare to finding glory in Christ who traded in the glory of heaven for the humiliation of the cross. And you know why he did this? I mean, the only explanation why Christ would exchange the glory of heaven to come to the world for the cross is because he looks at you and sees glory. It's because Christ thinks you are glorious, no matter what you think about yourself. You are made in the image of God and God says you are glorious and so you do not need to find glory in any other places. I listened to a sermon on this passage by Robert Cunningham and he said this. He says, you are famous in heaven. Did you know that heaven rejoiced when you entered into the kingdom of God? You are famous in heaven. Who needs the fame of this world? You don't need to wear long robes to be noticed. God notices you. You don't need to be greeted in the marketplace. God welcomes you. You don't need to be in the best seats in the synagogues. You are seated in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus your Lord. You don't need to pray long, eloquent prayers. I love this one. He says, God hears the faintest cry of your soul because he loves you. So what shall we do with our glory hungry souls? Do not suppress your hunger for glory. Feed it with all of your might, but feed it from the one source that will satisfy, feed it from Christ and Christ alone. For if King Jesus is willing to set aside the glory of heaven for you, then he must have a glory that will satisfy your soul. The gospel says that God notices you, God delights in you, God cherishes you, God loves you. And yes, God even likes you, believe it or not. And so just to recap, Jesus teaches us about getting into the kingdom of God, that we must surrender ourselves to Jesus, not only as our Christ, but also as our Lord. He also teaches us about glorying in the kingdom of God, that we are to glory in the gospel of Christ, which is the only thing that will satisfy our soul. Finally, Jesus challenges us by instructing us on giving in the kingdom of God. Look at verse 41 with me. And Jesus sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. It wasn't actually an offering box. What they used at the time were ram's horns turned upside down, and they cut off the top, so when people put money in, they couldn't steal it back out. Um, how it normally worked is there would be several ram's horns, and they would come up, and whoever was working in the temple, they would say, "I want to donate this much money to this cause," and then you put it in the appropriate ram horn uh, this was above and beyond their tithe uh, that they were giving to god and so when they would when they would tell them it would be announced or some i don't know if it was like blasted but at least it would be announced in some way shape or form that people could hear it verse 41 continues it says many rich people put in large sums and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins which makes a penny Literally, one coin is about half a cent. This was the lowest uh, uh, currency in the Jewish culture. For us, it would probably be the equivalent of about 75 cents. Okay? Not enough to buy a cup of coffee anywhere. And it's important to see that this woman gave two coins, which means she could have given one coin and kept one coin for herself. <coughs> but she gave all of it because she was giving all of herself herself. From a human perspective, this contribution is not only foolish, but it is negligible. I mean, what can you do with 75 cents? But in the eyes of God, it is precious. Verse 43, and Jesus called his disciples to him and said to them, truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more. She has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. Why is that? For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. You see, others gave it out of their surplus, so it did not affect their life in any way, shape, or form. But for this woman, it was her very livelihood that she gave. And Jesus says, this is more. Because for Jesus, the value of the gift is not so much the amount given, but the cost that it was to the giver themselves. Let me say that again. For Jesus, the value of the gift is not the amount given, but the cost to the giver themselves. Teenagers, this is is good news for you. You make $100 a month. If you tithe $10 a month, it's not going to make or break the church. Sorry to break it to you. It doesn't, Right? But to Jesus, it is precious in his sight. You know, our church is an extremely generous church. But money might be the cultural blind spot and sacred cow of our modern American Christianity. I can talk about just about anything from the pulpit, but when it comes to money, people get very, very fidgety, get very uncomfortable. Talk about anything you want. Just don't talk about my money. But again, outside of the topic of the kingdom of God, Jesus talks more about money than any other subject in the Gospels. And the reason Jesus talks so much about money is not because Jesus needs your money. He does not need your money. It is because how you distribute your money shows the condition of your heart. We spend money on what we love, and we love what we spend money on. I mean, you could ask me, you could say, hey, Dan, tell me about the things that you love. But you know what would be a more accurate representation is if you looked at my bank account. My lips could lie to you, my heart could lie to you, but my bank account will not lie to you. So if you said, like, I like golf, and I like disc golf. And if I could, if you're like, which one do you like more? Um, I could tell you all these things about golf, how great it is, but if you look at my bank account, you say, you like disc golf more because you spend money there. You don't spend money on golf. How we spend our money shows what we love. Our money is an outward expression of our inward heart. We can trick ourselves, we can trick others, but we cannot trick God. So Christian, let me ask you this very uncomfortable soul-revealing question. Does your giving reflect a love for Christ and his kingdom, or does it reflect a love for yourself and the luxuries of this world? Can I be honest with you, and and some of you will really not like this, but for some of you, it will be a wake-up call of God's grace if you do not sacrificially give to the kingdom of God in some way, shape, or form through missions, through mercy ministry, through the church, whatever it might be, there's a good chance that you are close to the kingdom of God but not in the kingdom of God because it is clear that the kingdom of God in Christ has not captured your affections if it does not capture your treasure. If we truly love Christ and his bride, the church, sacrificial giving is not only a duty, it is a joy couple weeks ago, I don't know why this is, you may have noticed, like, I've had all these passages on money, we're just going through the Bible, it happens, but um, <coughs> we are talking about, God must have a lot to teach me, um, but, but we're, we're talking about money, and after the service, a, a guy came up to me, he's like, you know, uh, it's ironic you talk about money today, because for the first time ever, I, I tithed, I, I looked at my paycheck, and I took the first 10%, And I tithe it to the church. And he wasn't saying this to brag or say, hey, look at me, but saying, like, I'm growing. Like, I'm growing in Christ. And and you can see it's hard and it's difficult because because he has a family to feed, to take care of, that he wants to provide good things for them. (coughs) And to tithe was, was a sacrifice for him. But this was also an opportunity for celebration because it means that the kingdom is expanding in his heart and in his life and in the life of his family, Friends, Jesus does not need your money. But Jesus does see what you do with your money. And he cares a lot about your money for this one reason alone. He cares about your heart. He cares about your love for him and his church. He cares about whether or not he is Lord over your life or the things of this world are the Lord over your life. He cares about whether or not you glory in him or in the pleasures of this world. One more interesting thing in this passage, verse 44 ends, and it says, all she had to live on. Uh, The English actually does not do it justice. The original Greek language in verse 44 uh, uses the word bios, which is the word for life. Uh, To to translate it woodenly would be, she gave all of her life. What would it take for someone, what would it take for you to give all of your life life? to Jesus, what it would be to understand that he has given all of his life for you. John 3.16, one of the most memorable passages, famous passages in the Bible, for God so loved the world that he gave, he gave, he gave his one and only son his most precious treasure that whoever believes in him as Savior and as Lord should not perish but have eternal life. Jesus traded the riches of heaven for the poverty of this world and the shame of the cross so that you could be rich eternally in him starting today and forevermore. I love that old hymn, when I surveyed the wondrous cross on which the prince of glory died. And then it says, "Were the whole realm of nature mine. If I owned everything in the entire world. That were an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. This woman gave radically and generously and sacrificially. And to some of you, this seems foolish. But to others who have understood the radical, sacrificial generosity of God in Christ, her donation. It's beautiful. Let me end with this. Uh, As I mentioned, uh, my Uncle Fred got us into the Magic Kingdom. Uh, When we got down there, we found out they actually had to spend a couple days doing it because some systems have changed. It was quite a hassle for him. Uh, And we did get to go to the Magic Kingdom, and it was glorious, even though rides are outdated for the most part. But, like, the the castle is beautiful, the fireworks, uh, you know, all of the princesses my daughter loved. Like, it's a glorious place to be. The night before we went, we, uh, we decided to take my Uncle Fred out for dinner. Uh, he got to choose a place. I think it was a place called Sweet Tomatoes. And it was really good, but it was pricey. Not for one person, but when you have seven people, it you know cuts into the budget a little bit. And you know, we didn't have to take him out to dinner. Um, but it was our joy and it was our pleasure to do so after everything he had done for us. How he had gotten us into this magical kingdom. Friends, Christ our Lord has given us everything we need to get into the most magical kingdom of all. For it is the kingdom with a perfect, gracious, and loving Adonai who seeks to care for you. It is the only kingdom that can satisfy the hunger for glory that your soul has. It is a kingdom that turns giving of our two coins from a burden into a blessing. Because it is a joy to give to the King who has given all for us and all to us. Friends, let us enter into the kingdom of God through Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Let us glory in the kingdom of God, knowing that Christ and the gospel are the only glory that will satisfy our souls. And finally, let us give generously to the kingdom of God because God has so generously given to us his one and only son that we might be partakers and enter into the kingdom of God itself. Let's pray. Lord, we are, we, are, we are so thankful for how much you love us and care for us. Uh, there is so much in this passage that I know is convicting for me. I'm assuming it's convicting for others here, Lord God, uh, that we often don't treasure our greatest treasure. So Lord, pray that you would help us to pursue the glory that, not the glory that comes from man, but the glory that comes from God. Help us to pursue that with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That we will live as people rejoicing inside the kingdom of God. As we turn to the table, we are thankful for how you are so thoughtful in nourishing us and showing us the gospel in in seeable, touchable, consumable ways, God. May we be reminded of how you have laid down the riches and the glory of heaven to give us riches and glory that we long for. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.